Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today is probably one of my favorite interviews that I've done, and this is with Andrew Sheps. Now, if you're not familiar with Andrew, I guarantee you that you're familiar with his work. He has worked on so many amazing records, and you've definitely heard at least one of them for sure. He's worked with artists such as the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Adele, Metallica, Jay-Z, and so many more. And Andrew has a great story, and I think he's just, he's very articulate with the way he answers questions, and I think... In this interview, you're going to get a lot of clarity around a lot of elements of what goes into making a pro sounding record and all of the little details that really add up to make a better experience for the listeners and for the artists that you're working with. And in this interview, we talk a lot about the efficiencies of working in the studio and how Andrew has developed macros and all sorts of apps that have helped him work really fast and not necessarily need an assistant anymore because he's able to just press a button and his computer does a lot of the work for him. And we talk a lot about the different tools that he's working on and how you can even get your hands on some of these tools to make your process much faster. And we also get into some really cool conversation about his routing systems and also how he uses effects in his mixes and how he uses different ways to manipulate the sound to ultimately shape his effects to get the best sound for the mix. So, yeah, there's just so much gold in this interview, and I know that you're going to love it and find it super helpful. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Andrew Sheps, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No problem. For people who might not know your history, which I find hard to believe because you've worked on so many amazing, massive records that everyone has heard, but for people who might not know your background on how you got into music and how you got into mixing and producing and all the amazing stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that story? Uh, yeah, I'll give you the short version because it's, you know, 30 something years long. Uh, basically, I discovered recording when I was in high school. Uh, I saw my first recording studio. I saw a console and I was always somebody who loved to push buttons and have things happen. And I already knew that I was not a good enough musician to make that into a profession. So I saw that side of working on music and just absolutely loved it. So I went to the University of Miami, which was one of, I believe, only two schools in the country that were offering four-year degrees at that point. And in the mid-80s, a four-year degree was still like a big deal. You really kind of needed it or you were screwed. Whereas now, I don't know that that's the case at all. Um, and then, so I did that for four years. Great school, a lot of fundamentals. Also met a ton of people who I'm still in touch with. I mean, Joe Barisi was there at the same time, Neil Avron. List goes on and on and on. Techs, engineers, producers, musicians. Amazing. Um, right out of school, I got a job with a manufacturer as opposed to going to intern in a studio, which is what I assumed I would do. But a job showed up that actually paid money. I took it. I got to work in L.A. and then in the U.K. Uh, for about three years and then realized, hey, I'm not making records. I'm in sessions, but I'm not making records. So I quit that job and then I moved back to L.A. from England and was doing a lot of MIDI programming because that was um, something I was good at and Synclavier programming because that was the company I'd worked for. It's one of the early digital synthesizer sampler sequencers. Um, and did that and sort of work my way sideways over the next many years into actually being an engineer, which is what I'd always wanted to do and then to eventually produce. And I think, you know, there are many, many paths to being a producer, but the one that I thought I would take is engineering. And obviously you can be a musician who's a producer. You can be just a producer. There's some who are come out of the womb as producers and that's it. So it, it was just a really, really slow climb. I mean, I had... I would usually have some extra skill like the MIDI programming and the Synclavier programming. And then I was really, really early into Pro Tools and digital editing because I was doing multi-track digital editing on the Synclavier because they introduced disc recording before Pro Tools even had TDM. Um, so I always had this kind of extra skill which would get me into the room. And then when budgets, like when the record industry stopped printing money, basically, so the very beginning of um downloading music and digital copies of things 
when that started and budgets shrank, there were fewer and fewer people on sessions. I mean, before that, it was not uncommon to have an engineer, a producer, an assistant engineer, a Pro Tools operator, and maybe another assistant engineer in the room all day, every day. And then the band would have a drum tech and a this and that. And it immediately, when the budgets got cut, some of those roles had to get put together into fewer people. So there were a lot of producers who were also engineers and they started engineering their own projects again. But then Pro Tools became so ubiquitous that you really needed a Pro Tools operator. And there were a lot of really amazing engineers, but who just didn't want to learn it or couldn't learn it or whatever. And so I started getting more engineering work because I was a really good Pro Tools operator. And anyway, just step by step by step and, you know, it felt like a ridiculously slow climate from the outside. It always looks like, Hey, you exploded onto the scene with whatever thing people see that you did first. Um, but yeah, it was just a 30 year slog to get where I am now. And it's all one thing on the back of everything else, which I'm happy about because I know some people who had really early success and unless you can back it up and back it up and back it up and back it up, you end up having kind of a short, like supernova career because you're only known for that one thing that you had that was super successful early on. And then when you don't have more successes right away, you're just pigeonholed and tastes change and stuff like that. So like if you had a bunch of hits really early on with disco records, you were the disco guy. And if people aren't making disco records anymore, then nobody wants you to work. So I'm glad with how long it took and how bizarre my discography is. But uh, yeah, so anyway, incoherent and long, but that's still the short version. No, that, that you know, that's amazing. And it actually reminded me a lot of one of my other guests, uh, Mike Exeter, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, mm -hmm. but, he, but he also talked about how he was a Synclavier tech as well and how that was one of his ways to get in, in the door and, you know, work in these studios. And, and uh, so it kind of reminded me a lot of that. And, you know, I love the way you put it just about having extra skills just to get your foot in the door and, and just to get in the room and, and not just be known for one thing. And I, and I agree. I think that that's so important and it's something that a lot of people don't think about, you know, it's just like, Oh, I'm going to just be pro. I'm just going to be like the pro tools guy or whatever. Like they have, they have one lane and that's, that's all they do. So in today's day, like how do you see people diversifying their skills? Like what, what were, what would be some of the things you would suggest people learn to, to get their foot in the door then? Um, well, you, if you want to go like work at a studio, which there are what, 25 jobs total left in the world <laughs> that are working at studios. I mean, it, it's, it's such a different world now than it was before, but the, the main thing is that knowing the equipment or the software is a given. That's not a talent. That's like, you better know the crap out of everything you work with and every tool. And that includes troubleshooting and it includes signal path and things like that. So you understand when you're trying to set up a microphone and it's not working, how do you troubleshoot it? Like that's a skill you have to have as well as knowing what different microphone patterns are. So you kind of need to know everything all at once. And I think if you're not the kind of person who is just devouring books and user manuals and things like that, then you probably don't want to try and get into more of the commercial recording business. It's just not the kind of thing that you're, you're going to be suited for. Now, the good part about that is if you're not the kind of person who wants to do that, there's millions of records being made not in that setting now. So you could just set up a studio at your house. And if you know how to run that studio and nothing else, that's fine. The people who come in are always going to be working at that studio and that's fine. But I, I think the main thing is to be completely fluent on every single thing you use when you're working so that you never think about the buttons or the keystrokes or how to do stuff. You never want to stop a creative flow to figure out how to do something mechanical. Of course. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you are going to be assisting someone in the studio or even if you're not like you, you always want to have that flow. You want to make the sessions go as smoothly as possible so that, you know, you're not holding up the artist. If you want to be in that kind of role, then the other two things are, first of all, you have to be somebody who people want to have in the room. You could be the most talented person in the world as an assistant, but if you're a dick, you're gone. Like, that's it. You're there to be in the room. And then the biggest thing is to always be watching what's going on and know what's going to happen next. 
especially if you work as an assistant to an engineer on more than one session, you have to start getting a feel for not only like what microphones they like to use on certain things and what the signal chains will be so you can be patching up gear, but even like what time of day they kind of need a coffee or they start getting hangry, you know, like you've got to really preempt all of that stuff. Um, so that when they ask you to patch something, you're already standing by the patch bay with the patch cord, not like, oh, right, hold on, let me finish returning this email. And, you know, then I'll be right with you. I love that. I, and it's it's so true. You have to be a proactive assistant and not, and not a reactive assistant, because I think that's how so many people are. It's just like they take it as it comes in the moment and, you know. It's already too late at that point. You're slowing down the session. And it goes it goes for smaller project studios, too. I mean, you have to be that same way about the musicians. You've got to read the room and know when they need a break or what you think they're going to be doing next or when it's time to move on to the next song. Like, that's all the same thing. You've got to be predicting the future constantly based on the personalities in the room and try and make it productive and exciting. And that that's where you get good music. Of course. Yeah, it, it's like... You know, if, if you're operating a home studio and you're working with smaller local bands, you still have to kind of look at the way the business has traditionally run and look at some of these bigger studios and the way that they were able to survive. And, you know, it was all of these little things that made that experience better for the artists that came through the door. So it, it kept people coming through. And if you can implement a lot of those same things into your home studio environment, you can keep keep your business afloat and, you know, still impress your clients and have them come through the door on a regular basis, too. Yeah, it, it seems on the surface like it's a technical gig to have a home studio with some creativity. And the creativity is great, but it's a service industry. And all the stuff that you feel is like the gig, which is technical, is what I was talking about before. That's a given. Of course. You've got, I mean, you obviously have a headphone system and a way to mic up a drum kit. And if that's what you're doing is recording drums, then it's a given, right? That you can record drums. So every aspect of that is something you have to know inside and out so that you never even think about it. So you can be paying attention to the fact that the drummer is sweating so much that maybe you better turn up the AC. <laughs> Absolutely. It's what diverse, or it's what um, differentiates people you know, because there are so many engineers and studios operating the same way. They have all the same equipment. They all have the same software. They're they're the at, like you said at the core of it. It's like the same product, but it's the experience. It's the the people behind it that are really the things that differentiate one place from another, and they make that make you in demand. You know, so uh, I love that you touched on that. I think that's really important. Um, you also talked about the idea of like di diversifying not just your skills but also. Uh, diversifying your genre as well. And yeah, when you look at your discography, I mean, you've worked with everyone from Adele to Green Day and like all of the bands in between. And it's it's definitely all over the place. But I'm, I'm curious to know, like, is, diversific is diversification in genre for you? Is that something that you look at just more as a way of keeping yourself sharp with like what's happening in different genres and different audio skills? Or is that something that, you know, maybe is more just kind of a necessity to to make a living or like yeah you know, where does diversification come in your in your role there I mean I to me I feel like it comes from the outside I just get asked to do these projects and it's like oh great I would love to mix a classical record I'd love to do a jazz record I mean one of my favorite records I've mixed is um uh, an album by Sarah Kirkland Snyder who's a, a composer um Actually, I mixed a couple of things that she's been involved in. There are a couple of jazz records I've done that have been great. So the opportunities come up. But I think one of the things that I've realized just about myself, and I think it's true not only just for people in general listening to music, but then also for the music you work on, is I think when you're younger, you really identify with genres. And part of that is the kind of tribal part. It's because the people who like that music also dress the same as you, and they're all in the same message boards as you or whatever it is that makes it into a tribe. But if you really think about it with any one of those genres, you're going to gravitate towards certain parts of the genre. And if you start to analyze it a bit, you'll start to realize that what you're really liking is the stuff that has the same sort of emotional impact. Like if you like super happy music, then you probably don't like dark, angry music. And if you like dark, angry music, you probably don't like super happy music. And then when you realize that there is super happy music in every single genre, there is dark, aggressive music in every single genre. And I like the dark, 
dissonant, aggressive, sad, like all of that stuff, heart-wrenching, you know, that kind of thing. Not, you know, exclusively, but that's what I gravitate towards. And so that's how I approach everything I mix is about impact and about making you really emotionally involved and to make things important and weighty. And it doesn't matter what the genre is at all, to the point where, like, one of the sort of options you thought for why I would do it was to stay current. And I have absolutely no idea what's going on in any genre ever. (laughs) I get the track to mix. I connect with parts of it. I immediately identify the things that are like, oh, I really want to make this happen. I want to make that happen. I love that. Let's make a big deal out of that. And then I mix the song and that's it. So, yeah, there's almost no thought at all about genre. Interesting. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, yeah, when you found that element of, you know, like you said, like your your tribal genre, whatever you, you gravitate towards, like when you find whatever element it is in that genre that makes you connect with it, then you really can apply it to any anything. And uh, it can make listening to music a lot more fun in a lot of ways, because now you can find things that you've never heard before in other genres. No matter what you listen to, I guarantee you, you could find jazz, classical, and reggae records that you would also like. I guarantee it. It's, it's impossible that you wouldn't because those three genres have everything in them. They're so wide that there will definitely be stuff you'd like. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Like, it reminds me of when I was when I was younger, I used to be really into like a lot of punk rock and like metal and that kind of stuff. And And then I remember like, one day I, I just I, I kind of connected. I was like, OK, I understand like why I like this stuff and just like the energy of it, whatever. And uh, I remember buying my next album that I bought was like a Christina Aguilera record. And it just seemed like so far opposite from what I was used to. But when I listened to that record, it was like, I love the production behind this. I love what they're doing with that. And it's like the same thing that you're talking about there. It's just you find you find that thing that you connect with. And, it you know, maybe it was like the angst of like the way she sang or whatever that like I connected with. And. And it's like now I'm listening to pop music in a different light and starting to apply that to some of the music that I work on these days and just taking from different genres. And, you know, I think that that's that's a really good thing for people to to just get in their heads of like, you know, listening to different styles and picking up on different production tips from different areas and and implementing in your process. Yeah. I mean, most of the successful artists I've worked with don't listen within the genre they're in. Like Rivers Cuomo is like the biggest pop fan ever. He loves the songs. He loves the song structure and carefully crafted songs. And then he does them heavy. Like that's what they do. But the the listening that a lot of these people do is not the stuff like the stuff they do. And I think that's actually really good for creativity because otherwise you're going to have too many specific things like, oh yeah, I like the way they made that snare sound and that's relevant to what I do. Instead, it becomes these really big picture ideas that they can translate into what they do. And that's what makes them unique. And that's why they're successful. Of course. Yeah. I was, I was working with a band that Gene Simmons had signed and, uh, and I remember Gene like giving them production advice and it was always it always came back down to the Beatles. Like that was his favorite band. Right. And it was like the Beatles always did harmonies like this. So you guys should do that and like add that to your music. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's amazing when you can take from different styles of music and just, you know, make something unique and cool out of it for your for your yeah. own stuff, whatever genre it is. Yeah. Um, for people who like one thing I wanted to talk about in your career is that um you used to be an all analog guy and now you've definitely made the switch over to being all in the box. And some people may, may know that if they followed along with you, but for people who may not know that about you, I was wondering if you could talk about that and how you made that switch or why you made that switch. Yeah. I mean, I've told the story so often. I've always feel like I'm repeating myself saying it, but basically, yeah, I mean, I had a, a 64 input Neve console with flying faders and a wall of gear. And for years I mixed like that. I think part of the reason people are, are, kind of weirded out by the fact that I moved in the box is they're not thinking about, well, what'd you mix on before you had an Eve in your garage? I mixed in the box. I mean, when delay compensation happened in Pro Tools, that was like the best day of my life because I could stop having bypassed versions of the same plugins when I was trying to do parallel things and, and all of that. So I'd been mixing on everything. I had a Mackie well, I had a rack with three Mackie 1604s that were all feeding into each other. Then I had a Mackie analog eight bus and the digital eight bus. Then I had nothing mixing in the box with the 888s and some outboard gear. I mean, every style of mix setup I have done. And I've mixed records on all of them. So it's 
it's never been that much about it, though. Obviously, making the transition from Neve and a wall of gear to laptop and a pair of headphones was a little bit more traumatic than like, hey, I got a new desk to put on my Ikea table at the beginning at the, <laughs> uh, the front of the room. So, I mean, the reason for it really was about workflow. I mean, you know, I don't even have to go into why it's so great working in the box for workflow. You work on more than one song at a time. The recalls are perfect. I used to have to take about a telephone book size stack of documentation for every mix I ever did and printing everything in real time and not being able to print it the next night because I need to work on a mix in between now and then. So I'm right in the middle of the day where I would be really creatively like active, but I need to spend three hours printing mix versions because I got to take it off the console before I can get to the next mix. So all of that stuff I absolutely hated. There was a lot of, um, stuff about the analog gear, which was a pain in the ass. Like, the Neve didn't sound good to me until I was really starting to push it. But then your gain structure coming out of the mix bus was a disaster. And like finding things like EQ to put on the mix bus, as soon as you started boosting, you'd be hitting the rails. So then you got to drop the level down. And all of that's a nightmare. And all that goes away in the box. As soon as you're working in a floating point architecture, you've got an infinite number of places where you can gain structure. So you can hit something way too hard and then bring it back down and it's not clipped and you can don't worry about noise floor as much. So I didn't miss that stuff at all. But the main thing was I needed to be flexible and I needed to be portable. And I did it in the middle of a couple of records and didn't tell people just to see like, is anyone going to care? And nobody knew. The only thing it was one of the records was uh, the first Hozier record. And at the end of the record, the producer, Rob Kerwin said, man, did you mix this in the box? And I started to worry like, oh shit, you know, why? <laughs> and he said, just, you were turning around the, the recalls so fast. I don't know how you could possibly do that on a console. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And it's so I've not looked back and I, I would not mix on a console unless it was like to do a video for something. But if I'm mixing a record, like something that I actually have to turn around, I absolutely would not want to mix on a console. I take too many breaks. I get away from it. I work on other stuff in between. It would be impossible for me. Of course. So, yeah, it really wasn't about like the sonic sonic benefits of analog or any of that stuff it was just really like a workflow thing for you yeah i, I look at, at this point we're not even going to have the conversation because there's no conversation about analog versus digital they both work they're both great they're different you know you're not going to emulate one with the other perfectly but who cares it doesn't matter i mean if you like working on analog gear every piece of analog gear that's the same model is going to sound different. Every 1176 sounds different. Every LA-2A sounds different. Every new piece of gear sounds different because of tolerances on components. I mean, now there are digital plugins that emulate the tolerances on components so that not every instance of the plugin sounds exactly. So that conversation is moot. I think, you know, they're all of the longest threads on gear space or whatever it's called now are about analog versus digital. And all I have to say is that Chad Blake and Serban Guinea have been mixing in the box for years and years and years. And that's some of the best sounding records you're ever going to hear. So obviously it's not holding you back. You can make it work. But at the same time, I'm not making the case for working digitally. If working analog makes you excited and makes your mixes better, then you should absolutely work analog. Absolutely. Yeah. You seem like you're the kind of person who really values efficiencies in the studio and and working really fast and and you know making a, a great experience for for yourself and for your clients as well so i'm curious to know like what sort of tools are your favorites in the studio to help you be more efficient well i mean i mix almost all the time now so talking about mixing it's sound flow no question 100 percent. it's a it's it's a macro program, but it is in a totally different class than all of the other macro programs in the world if you're using Pro Tools because it has really deep hooks into Pro Tools and it knows what's going on in the sessions. And it's amazing. I've spent the last almost three years now uh, just scripting stuff and 
there is, if I do anything repetitive now, I will stop and write a script to do it for me because it's that stuff that bums you out and then you're not creative. Absolutely. hundred percent. And yeah, I got into SoundFlow maybe about a year ago or so. And yeah, it's just, it's just amazing how, how fast it makes you, you know, just like, like you said, like anything you're like, oh, I do this every day, like 10 times a day. It's like, well, let's just make a button for it and use it on my stream deck. And all of a sudden life is a lot easier and faster. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Were you always a really efficiency based guy? Like even in analog, did you have systems there to work faster? Yeah, I mean, I have some OCD where I am constantly thinking about what are going to be the steps to do the thing I know is coming up. So, yeah, I mean, always trying to do things faster, not have repetitive stuff, be ready for things. Um, But, you know, in the physical world, it's more about just being prepared so that you already have in your mind how you're going to go about doing something because you can't script plugging in microphones. But you can figure out what the cable layout is going to be in the room and what order to hook them up so that you're not tying knots and everything. And when they want to move the overheads of the room mics, which are going to move much further than the snare mic, the snare mic's mic cable is underneath the overheads in the rooms. Like stuff like that. that. It sounds ridiculous, but there are a thousand of those on every tracking session. And if you do all of them, they make a gigantic difference. Huge. I love that. Yeah, just paying attention to those little details that go a really long way in the end. That's amazing. You had talked about SoundFlow and how you've implemented that into your process and how that's really helped you out a lot. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was Bounce Factory, which is an app that you've recently put out and that ties into SoundFlow. And I've just got to say, like, I I recently used it for the first time and it was just I loved it, man. It was it was so cool. Like, you know, being able to uh, just walk away from my computer while it did all the work for me. So for people who might not know what Bounce Factory is, can you give us the, the spiel about, you know, what it is and who it's for and what it does? It, well, first of all, it's only for people on a Mac with Pro Tools because okay. SoundFlow is Mac only and this program is for Pro Tools. So, and you're going to get people leaving comments and say, well, Reaper can already do that. Like, okay, fine, but I don't work in Reaper. I work in Pro Tools for whatever <laughs> reason. It doesn't matter. So what it does is it completely automates the process of bouncing mixes. And it started off as me discovering SoundFlow and like most people who discover SoundFlow immediately wanted to write a script to bounce mixes because it's tedious. You go to the dialogue, you set things up and those things are set up the same most of the time. So I started off with a really simple, dumb script that just did things exactly the way I did them. And then things would change and like, all right, I got to modify the script. And then I'd realize, well, let me make the script more flexible and more flexible. And let me put a skin on it. So it's actually easy to see what's going on. And then I just realized I'm going to turn this into an app. And at that point, I got really serious about programming and about UI design, UX and how to do it. And I'm a total geek and it was a pandemic. So I never left my house. I mean, I sat in this chair probably 16 hours a day, seven days a week for two years because there was nothing else to do. Absolutely nothing that I could go do. So that's what I did. And it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So it um, and you might think like, well, why do you even have to do it? But if you're doing a record for a label now and not even just a major label, any label, and they're interested in Atmos, you will probably have to deliver upwards of 25 to 30 prints of every song. You've got your regular mix prints, so your main mix, your acapella, lead and background separate, your vocal up, maybe they want a TV mix, an instrumental. So that's five or six right there. Then stems, it used to be you could sort of be a dick, say, all right, fine, I'll give you drums, bass, guitars, vocals. Like, that's it. That's what you get. You can't do that anymore. You have to do at least kick snare kit, but really kick snare overheads rooms. Like that's the minimum, but it's nice to have the toms separate as well. Then you got to do bass. You need to do every single guitar part or set of guitar parts that are playing the same thing. Then you got to do background vocals. You need to group the same way. So you don't have to do every background vocal separately, but anyway, and on and on and on and on to the point where I will generally print between 20 and 35 stems for every single song. So you're up to 40 mix passes. And if you have to set each one of those up, the problem is, first of all, it takes a day to print them. 
because you have to set each one up, you have to sit in front of the computer waiting for one to finish, then set it up. So what the app does is it lets you set them all up in advance. Then you hit a button and it does the bouncing and it texts you after each one and blah, 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 blah. So that's what it does. It just completely automates bouncing mixes. And I'm constantly adding features to make it even easier to set them up because even the setup process starts to seem like a real drag once you're no longer having to sit there bouncing. So again, anytime something frustrates me, I write a feature. There's been a lot of feedback since it came out. Um, I'm in the middle of adding a pretty major feature, like right now is writing code right up until the time we started the calls. So it's ongoing. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's awesome. I can't imagine working without it. It would make my life a misery now. I love that. Yeah, it's it's so true. It's it's the idea of, um, you know, making all of those different deliverables and those different mix passes and you'd mentioned Atmos, but it doesn't apply just to Atmos like that. That's certainly one sort of mix session or mix uh, deliverable that you would def- definitely need to do for some people. Um, but, you know, anyone even just working in stereo, you know, like you said, you have like your instrumental pass, your vocal up pass or your backing track passes, whatever. Right. Like all that stuff does take up a lot of time. And um, for myself, when I use it, you know, that that's exactly how I use it. And it was great. It was, you know, so quick. Um, and I think it also brings up a really interesting point about you mentioned that a lot of labels will ask for that stuff. But even just at, at an indie artist level, like having these different deliverables is really important. And I, I was actually having a conversation recently with a good friend of mine who works for a big publishing uh, company out in Canada. And she was saying that she just went on this big rant. And she was so frustrated because like all of these artists that she works with only ever have like the the, the main mix you know, and she's like, why aren't engineers sending like, instrumental mixes or the TV mixes like they should be doing that with every project they work on? Because it just makes it there's so much more opportunity. Well, but no one's paying them to do it. That the problem is no one's paying for it. You know, if they said, great, I'll give you another 500 bucks to print the stems. Well, great. And they said, well, but you're you're working in the box. It doesn't take any time. Like, yes, it does. <laughs> so now it can take time while you're actually sleeping. You know, and, and that's that's the point of it, because it really does take a huge amount of time to the point where when you're printing five mix passes for a song on a console and you translate that into printing 20 mixes on a song in the box, that's the same amount of time. And I just said that that was one of the reasons I stopped working analog. So, yeah, it, it's it's really important to automate that stuff, because otherwise you're not creative or you're spending one day a week printing stuff. And that's insane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it it is really a great time saver, and you know I, I do love that feature that it can just text you when it's done. You know the fact that you can just you spend that half hour to set it up and walk away. Yeah, and but it, it's also important because the artists do need it. You know they need it for live, they need it for all kinds of reasons. And it used to be that I was really, really pushing back on anyone who asked for stems that were any more broken up than that. You know, really basic set I said earlier, and it's unfair. You know, but no one was paying me to do it. So why would I spend the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you can if you can now work significantly faster than anyone else. And again, just, you know, it's that customer experience. It's, it's the deliverables that you're making and, you know, giving people in the end, like more than they asked for sometimes, you know, that that goes a long way just in terms of the reciprocity and just making people feel like you're the you're the person to go to that it's going to give them everything they need. Right. So, yeah. So for people who might want to learn more about about Bounce Factory and maybe even try it out for themselves, like where's the best place for them to do that? Well, I mean, if you want to see the really silly promo video I did, uh, you go to bouncefactory.net and there's promo video and then there are a bunch of walkthrough videos. So you can just watch the videos and I just show me doing it, taking some snapshots, setting up mixes, doing the mixes, what it can do. Cause it also, it'll do more than just bounce. It will import it back into the session. It'll put it on a playlist, on a track in the session. It can export a copy in a different format to a different folder if you want. So it's basically like the whole process of bouncing mixes, not just hitting bounce. Um, so you can see walkthroughs of that. And then if you're interested, there are links on that site that'll take you to SoundFlow. And there's a 30-day trial for SoundFlow. And there's a 30-day trial for Bounce Factory. So you get the whole thing. So you can try and, if you're into it, you can do your own macros and things like that in SoundFlow. Just set up lots of extra smaller things. Or ignore SoundFlow and just try Bounce Factory for a month. And it's the full version. There, there are no limits on what you can do in it. Awesome. Yeah. And speaking of uh, of Soundflow and macros, 
you know, you mentioned that that was something that you were getting into and that was really helping you save a lot of time. So what are some of the areas that you have created macros for your, for yourself that have saved you a lot of time? I mean, everything, every single step of my session prep is automated, including the importing from my template. So I've got one button to import the Atmos tracks from the template, one button to import the stereo. I've got a button uh, for every like major food group because I assign those to groups with the same name and assign them to VCAs. So you hit one button, all your drums go to the all drums group, assign it to the VCA. They're the right color, like everything to do with session prep. So I can prep a session in about 10 minutes once and that includes the reordering tracks and figuring out what the hell is there wow so from opening a session for the very first time to being ready to start mixing it's about 10 minutes so that's a big part of it obviously bouncing there are a lot of little things uh for while i'm mixing like assigning my default outputs would be to go to my mix bus but also to have a post fader send to the rear bus which is a stereo parallel compressor that i use on lots and lots of instruments so one button just to assign those outputs because it kind of sucks doing the same thing over and over and over uh, i'm just looking at my stream deck to see what else uh searching for audio suite plugins you hit a button and i can just start typing and search for audio suite uh i've got things to take whatever tracks are selected pop them into a new folder change the routing and color them i've got other ones to move tracks to existing folders uh because i i like to organize i'm that kind of guy um there's there are a couple for prepping melodyne for transferring into melodyne because there's no ara in pro tools yet so that's a process to get your audio into melodyne so that's all automated everything everything that sucks is automated that's amazing. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't have an assistant anymore, right? You do everything yourself as far as prep goes? Yeah, I'm it, my studio is in my house. So even if I had an assistant, they wouldn't have been allowed in for the last two and a half years anyway. So, um, yeah, I don't have one. And some people argue like, well, but you're taking jobs away from the assistant. But like, I, the logistics are impossible for me. I don't live in a city, first of all. I'm out in the middle of the country. So there isn't the pool to pull from though there are plenty of local people who would be great i'm sure um but it's also by the time i explain things to an assistant i could have done them because i've made the the process so fast and every session is different there are always these weird edge cases of well is that percussion programming or drums where what group do i want that in and i make the decision and i know i've made it and also for me session prep is where i kind of see what is in the session so if someone else preps it I have to spend just as much time going through everything to figure out what's there anyway. It, it just doesn't make sense. So I did have an assistant, not an assistant, but um, somebody who had the second authorization for all my plugins who actually lived in London. And then before that, someone in L.A. and before that, someone else um, who would bounce my mixes for me. So I didn't have to take the time to do it. But even with that, you know, first of all, there were always things where like, there are lots of questions about how to do it because every project is different. But also, you know, these are talented people and they get busy and they have careers of their own. And then it's like, fuck, now I got to tell somebody else how I like stuff. And it just it just doesn't work. If I were producing and tracking more, then it would make sense. I would love to have somebody who can take over the engineering while we're doing takes so I don't have to worry about that. There are lots of places where I would love another body when I'm doing that. But for mixing, there's no point. There, there's just nothing to do for sure. And yeah, if you're building these macros that save all of that time, then, you know, you don't really need someone to be in the room when you have a button that when you have a button that does it all <laughs> in a way, it's bad because I mean, you know, someone's got to teach the people coming up and in the old school major studio world that happened automatically, like you, nobody made records outside of a studio really until the eighties and really not until ADATs. So, you know, you'd go work at a studio and you would learn from lots of people. And so to kind of counteract my lack of assistance, I speak at tons of schools. I do seminars. I do all kinds of things to try and teach, which is in a way it's reaching a lot more people than one assistant at a time. Yeah. And you also brought up an interesting point about, you know, taking the time to train somebody to show them the way you like to do it. And there really is this great benefit in macros that when you built them, they do it the same way every single time. So once you've built it the way you need it to be, you know, you can just press a button and trust that it gets done properly. And 
you know, there's it's, it's eliminated the human error component of it as well. Right. And and sometimes even just for your own organization's sake, like having those macros built to like keep you organized the same way, it just it, it can save so much trouble later on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Streamlining's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, yeah, it definitely takes a lot of time. And, and and yeah, I find myself even with my stream deck now that I've got it. It's just like sometimes I'm like, OK, how did I how, how should I organize myself this way? So that like, you know, everything is just all cons- consistent every single time. And it's just like, let's just build a button for that. And yeah, I don't have to think about it. You know, it just prompts prompts me. What who's the artist? What song is it? Build all these folders for me. You know, it's it's done. It's just amazing once you get into the macros. Yeah, and and I think some people would look at it and say, "Oh, I mean, I've I've heard people argue against having mixed templates." And to me, that's insane because you're going to use a lot of the same stuff, even if it's just the routing, just to have buses that are named in your mix bus. And you can use different plugins on every mix completely from scratch if you want to. But do you really want to build all of the routing for everything every single time? And most people reuse stuff. So my template has way more than I'll ever use on a mix. And all of the stuff that is inserted on audio tracks, that's from scratch on every mix. I don't have anything in my template for the kick drum track. You know, that doesn't happen, but all of the routing is there. Most of the effects I'm going to use are there and I'm going to use, you know, half of what's in the session or 60% or I'm going to end up building all new stuff because it's not appropriate. But yeah, anything like that. And it's the same thing with color coding and organizing your tracks. The point is not that you're a machine and you're going to crank out a mix. The point is you can be more creative when you're not having to find the drums. If you know they're the dark blue tracks at the top of your session every single time and they're arranged kick, snare, toms, hat, ride, overheads, rooms with extra stuff shuffled in there if there is extra stuff then as soon as you hear something that you want to do with the toms, you're there working on the toms, not where the hell are the toms and you forget what it was you were going to do. Well, it's interesting you were talking about templates. So is your template usually just set up primarily for routing and then you import your tracks and using your macro, it it uh, automatically assigns the, the output, like the routing and stuff like that? Or do you have, you, you said you don't have a kick track, right? Yeah, I mean, my, my, template is all auxes master faders and vcas and the only audio track in it is the one that i would be printing stereo mixes to like that's it so i will import that into the session that i'm sent so i get a session from somebody i sort of clean it up a little bit understand what's going on reorder the tracks then i import my template and i'm running macro after macro after macro to color code and do the routing and get stuff sent through my template the way i want it to be but the tracks that come to me are left exactly as they came and then stuff will change from there and then that feeds into my template gotcha Gotcha. That, that, yeah, that makes sense. Because then, yeah, you're not trying to consolidate tracks to fit a certain mold of your template and that kind of thing. You're just you're just working with what you've been given. That's awesome. And I know that with Soundflow, they even have like the store component of it as well. And and some of some of the things that are in there that are available for purchase are things that you've macros that you've made specifically for session prep. Well, the the stuff for sale is I, well. There's one that's kind of about session prep, which would be the track selector. So it's just a much smarter way to select tracks than the Pro Tools way, where it will select everything that's assigned to a bus. You could say, just show me the ones that have a send assigned to that bus that aren't hidden and aren't inactive, because those are the only ones I want to change. So there's that one. Um, there are a lot of free ones I put out, like the Melodyne prep ones are free. There are hundreds and hundreds of free packages of scripts in the Soundflow store. I mean, store, there weren't any paid apps until about a year ago, I think. There may have been a couple, but... Uh, for the most part, everything is free there and it's just users uploading stuff. So I still do that too. Um, you know, I just m- make something I think is going to be useful for people and upload it. And that's cool. And then the apps, it's more operation stuff, but yeah, the, I guess the color deck is session prep too. So it's like the color palette and pro tools, but you can name the colors and you can select by color, which are two things you can't do in pro tools. So for me, it's always about the feature set in Pro Tools doesn't include this. Can I make it happen? Oh, yes, I can. And then I write an app and I stay up all night and I do that. <laughs> do you ever sleep or are you just always coding? 
I'm mixing or coding most of the time. I mean, to be honest, because they're so totally different that I can be completely burned out on mixing and then code for six hours, easy, or the other way around. They have nothing to do with each other as far as my brain is concerned, which is weird because the coding is strangely creative. It It's not just by rote. The difference is you don't send your code to somebody that you think is amazing and they go, yeah, I don't like it. Because that's <laughs> that doesn't happen, which is fantastic. It takes that part out of the process because it either works or it doesn't at the end of the day. But yeah. the actual structuring of your code, I mean, you can make things that are beautiful. Like you start off with this hundred lines of code to do something and then you start refining it and refining it. And sometimes you get down to like five lines of code. Like, man, that is awesome. So there is that great creative aspect to it, but it is a totally different side of the brain than mixing. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, well, an another thing I wanted to ask you about is it's kind of tying into some of the, uh, the template stuff and routing is that one thing I know that you do in your mixes is that you have what you call the rear bus. And, and I'm wondering if you can explain what that is and, and how you use that in your mixes. It's a parallel compressor. That's all it is. It's just a stereo parallel compressor. One of them. Uh, generally, it's two 1176 plugins multi-mono so that they don't interact with each other left and right side are compressing separately but i send everything except the drums to it years ago it was everything except bass and drums and i started like half the time sending the bass and now i just always send the bass um so it's like a squashed version of the mix that you then blend in with the unsquashed version because on my mix bus Lately, I've been using a compressor every once in a while, but usually it's just a limiter at the very end, and that's it, and it's just catching transients. So all the level is coming from parallel compression that I'm using on the drums and on the vocals, and then the rear bus is just this big parallel compressor for everything except the drums. Gotcha. So does that, sorry, does that rear, rear bus then feed into like your, your main master bus or is it its own? Well, yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't hear it. Yeah. So it meets up at the mix bus. Yeah. Gotcha. And then whatever else you've got on that mix bus, you know, if, if it's that limiter. Then... Yeah. I mean, the individual instruments all make their way there, whether it's through auxes or folders or whatever, they go straight there. And then the rear bus, which has all of them in it as well, but crushed up, makes it in there and then you blend the two. Gotcha. And why is it that you don't send the drums to the rear bus? Uh, because they would sort of take over. Like the kick and snare, I usually don't compress at all. So they hit the mix bus completely uncompressed. And so the limiter might be taking the transients of the kick and snare down 8 dB, but not touching anything else. So if those transients were going into the rear bus, well, it would only compress based on the drums. So that defeats the purpose because what the rear bus does is it lets the instruments interact in a compressor sort of by themselves. So they sort of self mix a little bit and then you blend that in and you get just, it just feels more glued together for me, but without having to compress the mix because I just don't like the sound of compressing the mix directly for some reason. Yeah, no, it makes sense what you said there about how the drums would take over. And so, yeah, it, it does give you that natural dynamic of, of the drums in there as well. Um, as far as compression settings, you said you'd like to crush that rear bus? Like well, it depends. It depends on the mix. I mean, I've got master faders and VCAs all over my templates so that I can really quickly change the amount of level that's going to different places in the signal path. So sometimes those needles aren't moving at all, and sometimes they're getting hammered. The general thing about most of the compressors I use, though, is they will be the slowest attack possible and the fastest release possible and a relatively low ratio. So it's kind of the least amount of compression you can get, but then you might really push the level into that, or you might not. It just depends on the mix. And I never look at them. I have no idea how hard I'm hitting these things. It's just <laughs> moving VCAs until I like the feel of it. And that's that. So then what is it that you're typically listening for then with that parallel channel? Like, because I know some people use parallel just as a way of just getting it more attack. And then some people use it to kind of control the dynamics and make it a little bit more squashed overall. So it's like, it's just all of the above, you know, it's, it's sometimes if the mix is feeling a little, like the, everything's feeling a little too separate, I'll add a bit more rear bus, whether that's going into the rear bus or out of the rear bus. I don't know. It, usually it's probably the output because I've got a VCA that's the output of all the parallel compressors. So I'll 
treat the rear bus as just part of the parallel compression stuff and turn it up and down. And sometimes I'll go to the rear bus itself and turn it up or down. And sometimes I'll mess with the input to it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't care that much about how much those things, it doesn't matter. It's just, do I like the way it's feeling right now? No. All right, go mess with that. Like I run out of ideas. So let me try messing with the parallel balance. Like, okay. And I'll convince myself that either, oh, great, I fixed it, or that's not it. I got to keep looking. Gotcha. Yeah, it's just like, it's part of your, it's just another tool in your template just to give you more flavor. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, One thing that I'm always really fascinated with is the way people use ambience in their mixes and how they mix it in, how they choose what kind of delays and reverbs to use. And one thing that I've noticed on a lot of the albums that you've mixed is that from song to song, there's a lot of variety in terms of ambience. It, it never feels like I hear the same reverb on every track on an album that you mix. So I'm curious to know, like when it comes to mixing an album or mixing a song in general, like what is your thought process going into that in terms of creating that ambience and, and creating that sense of space? There is no thought process at all. And probably I am using the same stuff on a lot of mixes. Um, it's just... I, I'm not good at reverbs. Like there's some people who are really good at reverbs and they can mix a song pretty wet and it's amazing. Like Al Schmidt is the king of that. Um, but there are lots of people who can do it in every genre and I am not one of those. So I think my mixes tend to be somewhat dry, but I do build like the overall reverbs are basically the same. And every once in a while I swap one out or I have an idea about something, but I build lots of effects for specific things in the mix. I love building weird delays for just parts of the vocal or something like that. So I will build those, but they're just super specific. Like I'll build spring reverbs for guitars that are panned opposite the guitar and turn that into a room mic. Um, but I'll also take advantage of the acoustics of the recording or effects that were already in the session. Um, so I will make use of that and tweak those things and make them do what I want to do. I will get tons and tons of ambience out of overhead and room mics by just crushing the crap out of them, either directly or parallel. And that will give the kit ambience i use distortion as ambience for the drums there's a parallel distortion that gives length to the drum kit and power that kind of feels like a really crunchy room mic but you'd never get a room to sound like that so yeah there are lots of different things that i do but most of them are in the template and they don't necessarily change but the balance of them will be totally different on every mix and then i'll build specific things for specific instruments i love that yeah and i love how you put it as like you know you can crush the overheads or crush the room and then that changes your ambience overall. And, you know, it's not necessarily just relying on a reverb plugin. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in the home studio world, you know, maybe they're not working with tracks that have amazing room tracks, you know what I mean? So they are, they are typically working with these reverbs. So I know that's, that's something a lot of people struggle with is just knowing like how to pick the right reverb or how to get that, that proper ambience. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you feel like everything's dry or you don't like the room something is recorded in, well, you've just said what the answer is. Work with room reverbs to begin with. Don't go for a plate on the drum kit because you read that that's what they used on Led Zeppelin records. That's what they had. And they used lots of room mics. So if they put reverb on the drum kit, which they didn't, I mean, it's a bad example, but there are lots of people who put plate on drums. But if you're struggling just to make the drum kit sound better, that's not going to fix it. You want to make it sound like it's in a better room. So either just room settings on reverbs, or if you can afford them, something like the room simulator plugins like the uh, the UAD Oceanway is a great plugin to put on overhead tracks or on room tracks because it essentially remikes them. It it's you know it's room reverb, but there's a lot going on and I have really good luck with that on badly recorded, not even badly recorded, but just the drums were not in a great sounding room. That plugin is fantastic for the overheads and the room. But you can do a lot with compression and a lot with EQ. Oh, EQ is overlooked. EQ seems simple and it's the most powerful thing you can do. Period. I'm just going to end that answer right there because <laughs> that's big. It's so true. And, well, sorry. I, one more thing is also that because what I wanted to say from the beginning of that 
incredibly long answer, was don't be afraid to process the reverbs. EQ on the way into the reverb. If you think the reverb is honky, take the honk out that's going into it. If it still sounds honky, then EQ the output, or you're just using the wrong reverb. But don't be afraid to compress the output of a reverb or compress the input to a reverb. Definitely DS the input to a reverb that's on the vocals if you don't like the S's. Like, fantastic. Just do that. I add harmonic distortion to the output of reverbs all the time because D-verb is a really crappy, grainy reverb that comes in Pro Tools, and I love it because it's really easy to hear. But if it's not the right reverb for something, but I'm having trouble hearing it in a really dense mix, distort it. Now you'll hear it. It'll take up more room, but you'll hear it. I love that. Yeah, it's it's so true. So many people just look at these reverb plugins as like, this is supposed to simulate a room, so... I'm just going to slap a reverb on, not touch it because it's it's creating a room. But but yeah, like you said, like you can shape these sounds so much to get so much character out of them and make them fit in your mix so much better when you, you play with it a little bit. Yeah. And, and I think the biggest thing, especially for people starting out or people a little bit unsure of what they're doing, is the uh, the phrase that I use is the only thing that matters is what comes out of the speakers. But if it sounds good, it is good. Don't worry about like, holy shit, I just added four EQ plugins to that track and they're all cranked at the same frequency. That just means there was nothing going on at that frequency, but you really wanted to hear it. That's fine. Just do it. If it's got artifacts or it's causing problems somewhere else, well, then it doesn't sound good. But if it sounds good, leave it. Nobody gets to look at the session. They just hear the end product. So do anything you have to do to make it what you want to hear, period. I love that. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of this video I saw of Eric Valentine working on the Queens of the Stone Age record, and he was walking through the signal chain on the guitars, and on every part of the chain, he was boosting like 15 dB of 2K or something like that. And it was just like, okay, EQ pedal on the guitar. We got this, the amp, we're going to crank that mixing board. We're going to do that. And it was just like, that's the sound. And it sounded good. And that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I love that. So then in the end for you, when it comes to working on a mix, like what defines a good mix to you? Just something that feels good. It's a great bonus if it sounds good, which whatever, I don't know what that even means, but you know, if you like the sonics of it as well, that's fantastic, but it just needs to feel good, period. It needs to get the music across. That's what's important. And it's the emotional impact of the music. Now, sometimes that can come from the sonics. I mean, the Steely Dan records, if those didn't sound good, I mean, look, they're great songwriters and great players, but would they have been as popular if they didn't sound as good? I don't think so. I think there's something about the sonic purity of those that helped elevate the songs, but it's because it helped elevate the songs. Now, there are records that audiophiles will listen to only because they're audiophile. You know, like, okay, that's fine, but that's a different listening criteria. We're not talking about that. We're talking about listening to music and it just needs to be exciting. I mean, if you listen to, I mean, you said you were into punk. I'm sure if you go back to a lot of the records you were listening to at the beginning, they sound terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no low end. It's hard to hear what's going on. The mid range is completely jammed, but they're so exciting. They are so exciting. And that's what you got from it. You weren't worried about, oh man, that kick drum's not right. <laughs> you probably couldn't even hear the kick drum. Yeah. It didn't matter. Agreed. Yeah. I'm also into like a lot of Motown stuff and like, I think Motown mixes are some like some of the worst sounding mixes, but they have such great songs and such great feel that the vibe is amazing. And that makes it a great mixes. You know, I, I would say those are great mixes because they make you want to listen to the song over and over. I mean, if you listen to stuff from the fifties and sixties, that's especially fifties. That's like all mid range or even pre fifties, forties and stuff like orchestral recordings that are nothing but mid range. Cause that's what, the technology of the day could capture, but you can hear every single instrument in the orchestra. Every single one. Like, that's insane. That's hard to do with the full range of Sonics and the amazing microphones that we've got now and the digital recording techniques at 192, 32-bit. And that's hard to do. And they're doing it with nothing between, I mean, only between like, what, 200 hertz and 7K, if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and those are great mixes. And they probably aren't even mixes. They were just captured that way. True. <laughs> I love it. So with all of that said, how do you know when you're done with a mix? 
when there's nothing you'd change? I feel like that's a risky, risky answer, though, because like so many people will constantly second guess themselves and find something to change. Right. Well, but that's see, that's the thing is you have to stop second guessing. If you listen from top to bottom, just listening without thinking about the fact like, oh, yes, I spent a long time compressing that bass. I wonder if it's right. Just listen to the song. You've got to reset your perspective, whether that's having someone else come into the room or you go away from it for four days. So you kind of forget what it was you were doing or whatever. When you come back fresh and you listen from top to bottom and you just listened and you loved it, then you're done. That's it. Love it. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. We, we, we sometimes get so in the weeds with our technical knowledge and, you know, technical focus that we, we sometimes forget that we're, we're just creating something that people are supposed to listen to and enjoy. And the flip side to that is, is just as important, though, because sometimes you just sort of give up. You're like, well, it's because of the source material. So I, I can't make the drums do what they need to do. Well, if you really can't, then somebody else has to do what the drums were supposed to do in your head. Like you can't stop because you feel like there's nothing you can do. There's always something you can do to make it what you want to hear. And as long as, you know, while you're working on the snare drum, you're thinking about frequencies and compression. I mean, that's fine. I'm not saying don't be a geek about this stuff, but don't let the geekery override what it is you're hearing. Because just because you think a snare should have this sort of frequency characteristic, well, that might be totally wrong for the song. And you have to be able to recognize that. But you also can't make excuses because, again, they only hear what comes out of the speakers. You can't write a long note and have that go to every single person who's going to listen to the song from now until the end of time. So you can't make excuses for it. And so if you're listening and it doesn't do what you think it needs to do, then you're not done. And it doesn't matter if you spent an hour or a month. It just doesn't matter. Agreed. I love that. Man, I think that that's, that's a perfect place to start to wrap this up. For people who might want to follow you online and learn more about the kind of projects that you're working on, what, what's the best place for them to do that? <laughs> There's no good place, really. I mean, the <laughs> only social media I'm still on is Instagram. And all I ever post are pictures of my cats or I repost stuff that other people post. Like, that's it. Um, so there's nothing there. All music has some credits, so you could kind of look there. People seem to update my Wikipedia page. I've never done it myself, but that seems to get updated. So maybe you could look there. <laughs> it's hard to know, man, but I do lots of podcasts, lots of interviews, and I speak at lots of schools. So there are interviews. So as long as you know when it's from, I would generally say something about what I'm doing. Like we didn't even talk about the fact doing lots and lots of Atmos mixing, and we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now, but yeah. So I've been doing a lot of Atmos lately. So now you'd come to this podcast to learn that. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back and we'll, we'll talk about Atmos and all the cool stuff you're working on there then. Awesome. So that was my interview with Andrew Sheps. And I love the way Andrew's brain works. I love the way he's able to break down every element of the process and be able to create efficiencies in everything he does. And definitely he was talking about Soundflow and Bounce Factory. And I recommend that you definitely check those out and start to implement them into your process because those two tools alone can save you hours and hours of time working on your tracks and making you have more of an efficient workflow and just having more consistency and organization in your tracks. And I think that the things that he's working on with those two tools are just amazing and they will definitely save you time. So definitely make sure to check those out. I also love the fact that we got into the topic of deliverables and all of the different types of deliverables that Andrew is used to sending out to clients. And that is something that I want all of you guys to pay attention to because for so many people, they just bounce out a stereo mix of a song. And as I was mentioning in the interview, you know, I was recently chatting with someone who is in the music publishing industry and she was just complaining about how people don't submit instrumental mixes and the TV mixes and all that kind of stuff. And if you're someone who's trying to get licensing opportunities with your music, you need to have these things available because you can be actually shooting down work by not having an instrumental version of your song or having the TV mix or an acapella mix, that kind of thing. So you definitely, as an artist, want to be thinking about the deliverables that you're receiving. And as an engineer, you want to be thinking about the deliverables that you're sending to your clients so that you can create more opportunities for yourself or for your clients. 
So yeah, this interview, I just loved every little bit of it. And I hope that you found this super valuable, super helpful. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. We've got way more interviews like this lined up. So I definitely don't want you to miss out. Now, another thing to do if you're looking to learn more about mixing and recording your own materials and you want some help along the way is definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, there are tons of great resources designed to help you get started and to help take out the guesswork from your process. And one resource that you definitely want to check out while you're there is called The Mixing Mindset. And that is a book that I wrote where inside I break down the process of mixing, talking about your workflow and what types of tools you need to know, what to be listening for, how to manipulate your sound, how to get the sounds that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers. So definitely check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.